At this time, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's word, we are going to be reading out of Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 5. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This is God's word, it is true, and it is given out of his love. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Stacy. Um, yeah, so just to tag up on that last announcement with the uh, DC leader training, uh, we are in uh, full swing with our DC. So if you haven't signed up for one yet, we di- highly encourage you to join one of our small groups, these discipleship collectives. They're really the, the hub of where the care and discipleship happens in our church. And so one thing that we believe is that that care needs to take place in an intentional and a focused way. And a church our size, in order for us to do that well, coming out of this pandemic and everything we've been through the last few years, we need a lot more groups than we have currently. So that's one of the reasons why that this uh, DC leader training is an open invitation. If you feel like God might be calling you to lead a group, we don't want it to be something burdensome or challenging. We want it to be like, hey, I'm going to grab me, a co-lead, and another person. I'm going to start a DC, and we're going to disciple one another and care for one another as God's people. So the training is going to be a really helpful way of us doing that together, kind of being equipped, getting some tools to better care for and disciple one another. So that'll be coming up in the next few weeks. I'd highly encourage you to, to, like Stacy said, read the book ahead of time and come prepared to, to learn how to lead a DC. So as we get going, um, one of the important things about my background is my parents uh, loved me really well, my dad in particular, and so he, grew, he raised me on westerns. Uh, so watching westerns is one of the best things for a young man to do as he grows up. And the last great western ever made was in 1985. It was called Silverado, with Kevin Kline and Danny Glover. Some people mistakenly think that Tombstone was the last great western ever made, and it's an awful movie. It's terrible. So... <laughs> I can't believe that people are, but I'm part of the discipleship process as we're learning what is and isn't a good Western. So, but in Silverado, Danny Glover is like classic mid-80s Danny Glover, tough guy. And he has this awesome scene where he encounters some injustice. He encounters some unfairness. And, and like only Danny Glover can say, he goes, now that ain't right. And I've had enough of what ain't right. And then he loads his Henry rifle, gets on his horse, and goes and uh, renders justice to all the bad guys like only Danny Glover can. I think the part about that scene, I love so much that phrase, that ain't right, and I've had enough of what ain't right. That's like this epic hero moment where you know the bad guys are in trouble, the good guy's coming to save the day, he's going to fight for truth and justice and all those kinds of things. Uh, and so uh, the, the, the interesting thing about that is like that's something we identify with, right? We, we want our heroes to ride in on the horses and put things that are unjust or unfair to the correct order of things. But now let's, let's think of another scenario. So uh, all of us, when we were kids, we would go to our parents at different times and we would complain about how our life was going. And the phrase we would use is, mom, dad, this isn't fair. Right? We would tell them, this isn't fair. And it's like every parent came with a manual that said to that, there was only one response. If your kid whines and says, this isn't fair, what do you tell them? Life isn't fair, right? How did every parent know that that's what they're supposed to say to their kid when they come? 
But those two competing things are a picture of, of where we are as, as humans, right? In one sense, we want to fight for fairness. When we feel like we've been treated unfairly, we want to we we say, I've had enough of what ain't right, and I'm going to fight against it. At the same time, we recognize that our parents were correct, right? Life isn't fair. There are so many things in our life that we're going to encounter that feel difficult and unkind and unfair and feels like the, the scales of the world are tilted against us. And so then as Christians, how we respond when our life is not fair is a very important opportunity for us to proclaim the gospel. Okay, so, so what if when we encounter unfairness, what if instead of thinking, how can we fight for our rights? How can we defend ourselves? How can we put out our chest and, and fight for our own standing? What if instead of that, what if we saw the unfairness that we experience as individuals as an opportunity to preach the gospel and to proclaim the goodness of who Jesus is and the character of who Jesus is and the beauty of the cross and what Jesus did for us? I think that's what we're going to see this morning that Paul does beautifully and that we can all learn from him how to be better disciples of Jesus as we model this same thing. So I'm going to say a word of prayer, and then we're going to study uh, Acts together. So Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, your presence with us this morning. I thank you that you have loved us enough to give us your word, and that when we come to these pages, we do see that this is your word, that these words are true, and it's because you love us that you gave them to us. So I pray that as we open these pages, as we study this story, that we would see in it uh, the beauty of your gospel and the beauty of your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are uh, in Acts chapter 24. We're going to do all of Acts 24 this morning. And this is kind of an, a significant moment for our church. Um, there, you, uh, you know in Lord of the Rings and the first one where Sam is walking and he's like, if I take one more step, it'll be the furthest from home I've ever been. That's kind of the moment we're at for this, our church this morning. This is the longest, officially this morning, this is the longest series we have ever done as a church. This is our 37th week in the book of Acts. And the reason for that is um, we, we stumble across this quote from Erasmus. He wrote this 500 years ago, but he says, Acts provides provides the foundations of the newborn church through which we hope that the church in ruins will be reborn. Okay, and there's something about that concept connected with us, I think, when we realize that, you know, the American church the last few years has been a church in ruins. There's been so many hard things that have happened, so many uh, things that we have responded to poorly, so many ways that we have struggled and failed in many ways. And so this idea of, like, the church in ruins, how can it be reborn on the gospel foundation of who Jesus is? And so Acts gives us this beautiful picture of what it means to be a gospel-centered church built on the foundation of Jesus Christ himself. And so last week what we saw in Acts chapter 23 is I think one of the most important concepts that we can glean from this entire book of Acts. Okay, what, what happened is Paul was arrested, he's in prison, and then Jesus himself physically manifests in Paul's prison cell with him. He literally overshadows Paul with his presence. And what Jesus tells Paul is to take courage. It's this command. He's saying, you can take courage. And the reasons for that is because Jesus is with him. He has his presence. Jesus is sovereign. He is Lord. He's in control of all things. We see that Jesus is for him. Him. And then also Paul is reminded that he is a citizen of heaven. And so the thing we saw last week, this really important concept, is if Jesus is with you, if Jesus is for you, and if Jesus is over you, then it's going to be okay. Okay, and one of the things that I, I shared last week was that our son Hudson had fallen and, and rebroken his arm. And it was this really powerful moment for him and I to be able to pray together about what does it mean for Jesus to be with you when life isn't going well. And we, we prayed that same prayer on Wednesday before we went into the doctor's office to get a follow-up x-ray. And 
lo and behold, in God's sovereign care, the break is not as bad as he thought it was. He only needs the brace for three weeks. And his little heart, his little nine-year-old heart left that doctor's office being like, man, Jesus is with me. Jesus is for me. Jesus is over me. Praise God. It's going to be okay. And, and at the same time, like I already shared, we, this last week, our, our friends who lost their son, they had the most amazing testimony ushering their child to the gates of heaven because they had lived their whole life believing that Jesus is with them, Jesus is for them, and Jesus is over them. And so that kind of testimony, in the small things, like whether you have to have a cast or not, the big, life-altering, horrific things that we can't even imagine, in all of those, this picture of Jesus being with us, for us, and over us, saying, take courage. You can take courage because I am with you, I am for you, and I'm over you. It's going to be okay. And so the reason we're spending some time talking about this getting started is the rest of the book of Acts does not make sense unless we have that firmly rooted in our brains. Okay, so from here on out, Paul is going to be in prison. He's going to go from unfair situation to unfair situation, from uh, uh, injustice to injustice. And the whole time, he maintains this courage and this posture that comes from believing that Jesus is with him, over him, and for him. So let's keep reading in Acts chapter 24 uh, as Paul begins another season here in prison. It says, after fi- And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming all that these things were so. And so this is the beginning of what we're going to call an unfair trial with an unjust judge. Okay, so everything that we just read about is completely false. And we're going to see how that unfairness is something that Paul has to deal with here. And so the first thing is that the Jews, uh, the, the religious leaders hired this man named Tertullus to be their lawyer. He's their spokesperson who goes in to try this case before the Roman officials. And the interesting thing about this guy is his, whether he is Jewish or not, he has a Greek name, meaning he's, he's probably a Gentile, or if he was a Jew, he's a, a Hellenistic or a, a Greek Jew, which means he's already adopted more of the Gentile culture than the Jewish leaders would have wanted, but they're willing to lay down their own opinions because of their hatred for Paul. They're, they're hiring the best lawyer they can to try to get the conviction that they want. That's how much they're driven by their hatred for Paul. And the thing about this uh, Tertullus guy is he is a, I mean, I think the, the textbook definition would be obsequious. When I grew up, we just called them brown nosers. I'm not sure if that's appropriate to say or not. But basically, if sucking up was an Olympic event, this guy would have the gold medal, right? Everything he says to Felix is completely absurd. He's like, we, we appreciate you so much. Everyone in every way recognizes that all of your decisions have been great. We're so lucky to have you, this Roman general, as our leader over the nation of Israel. And the interesting thing, when you, when you look at some other historical accounts of this man, Felix, that he's trying to suck up to, everything that this man said is the exact opposite. 
Okay, so it says that he brought peace to the nation when in actuality, the amount of violence increased a ton under Felix's rule. It said that, that he has, has brought these good reforms to the nation. And in, in reality, we know that through um, all these rules that Felix put in place, all he was doing was lining his own pockets. He was getting incredibly wealthy off of the taxes he was putting on the Jewish people. And then he says that we all accept this. Okay? And in reality, no one accepted Felix's rule. And because he was there, the number of insurrections and the number of people who were willing to fight against Rome increased uh, a ton because of how brutal of a leader he was. How, he was he was an incredibly violent man who would crucify people all the time in order to, to have the, the heavy hand to try to keep peace when it actually had the, the opposite effect. More people were willing to fight against him because of this. And so, so here's how bad Felix was, and here, here's how we know how bad he was. When Nero became the emperor, he thought Felix was so brutal that he removed him from his position. Okay, that's, that's like Hitler saying, I'm removing this general because he's not quite nice enough. He doesn't have the kindness that we want to. Like, that's how bad, if, if Nero is removing you because you're too bad, that's a sign of how bad a dude you really are. But the thing that this Tertullus does is he brings three charges against uh, Paul. He says that he's been stirring up riots. He says that he's the leader of a sect of the Nazarenes. And the reason that's important is because Judaism was a state-approved religion. That the Jewish people had the right to worship in their temple and the Romans had promised they weren't going to interfere with them in any way. So by calling Christianity a sect of the Nazarenes, they're saying this is not an official religion that should be persecuted by the Roman government. And then even calling it the Nazarenes. The reason they're doing that is because that's an insult, right? There's this expression in the ancient world, can anything good come from Nazareth? Again, like I grew up in Peyton and that phrase works there. Can anything good come from Peyton? And most of the time the answer is no. So he's insulting Jesus by saying that it's the sect of the Nazarenes and it's not a state-approved religion. And then the last charge, the third one, is it says he tried to profane the temple. And what they mean by that is he, they, they are accusing Paul of bringing a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, into the temple and which that was immediate grounds for death according to the Jewish laws that the Romans allowed them to do. So, so with those three things, um, we're going to see in a little bit, all three of those are untrue. They're they're all three completely false. But imagine, put yourself in Paul's position. Imagine how frustrating it would be to have to silently sit there and listen to an, an incredibly unjust and unfair ruler be sucked up to by this guy who is lying through his teeth about you and the things you have done, knowing that in some ways this is all completely out of your hands and you have no power whatsoever. That is the definition of an unfair situation with an unjust judge. And how do we respond whenever we enter a situation that feels unfair? I mean, like I made fun of Tombstone a little bit ago, and some of us were like super upset about that. We had to defend the, the righteousness of our favorite movie kind of thing. But imagine when we're personally attacked. When someone says something against you that you know isn't true, that pit you get in your stomach, the, the desire, the drive to say, I have to go make this right. I've had enough of what ain't right. I'm going to go see what I can do. Uh, and I think if we, if we evaluate ourselves, that this is something that we all struggle with. We all want to fight for our own rights. If, if someone attacks us, we feel this internal drive to push our own rights to try to make our life more comfortable. Okay, here's an example. Uh, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but it seems like they've put up a ton of red light cameras all around town in the last few months. Have you guys noticed that? And so, like, in principle, you want to say, oh, yeah, if I run a red light, I'll get the ticket. I'll be like, look, 
there's photographic evidence. I was in the wrong. I shouldn't have done that. That's how we want to think we'd respond. But, but really, when we get that ticket in the mail, because you know you're going to, but when you get that ticket, you're going to shake your fist at heaven and be like, why hast thou forsaken me, O Lord? Why am, how am I getting a ticket from a camera? How does that happen? And so when something as simple as that, like a, a few hundred dollars for running a red light, we feel like we have been wronged. We feel like the, the world is unjust. Like I said, those scales are tipped against us and we got to fight to see if we can get things back into order to make sure that our rights are protected. But the thing that we're going to see is when we respond in anger, you have to leave the gospel behind. You can't be clinging wholeheartedly to Jesus and respond with our flesh. If, if, we, if our desire is to fight for our rights to try to show that, that we have been wronged, we miss the opportunity that the gospel provides us to share Jesus' love. So let's see how Paul responds to this situation uh, in verse uh, 10 and following. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. So he basically says, like, he's not sucking up to him like the other guy. He says, I recognize that you are the leader in charge here. I'm just stating the facts. He says, you can verify it was not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the, or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, and then he kind of like pauses here. Like this sentence feels weird because it's, it's a half sentence in Greek. He's like, there's some Jews from Asia. And then it's like he turns around and is like, where are my accusers? The people who brought this charge of him bringing a Gentile into the temple aren't even there to make the accusation. He says, they ought to be here before you and to make the accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. And so, so what Paul does, he remember, there's three charges brought against him, that he had started riots, that he was a leader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and that he had profaned the temple. And so what Paul does is this beautiful little gospel sandwich here. He, he begins by answering the first, he answers all three charges in order, but the charge that he spends the most time on is this middle one, this idea of him being a leader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So he begins by saying uh, he didn't start any riots. He's like, they didn't find a crowd with me. There was no one disputing. I was just there in the temple by myself. I wasn't starting a riot. He ends by saying, I didn't profane the temple. Like if, if there was any witnesses that saw me bring a Gentile into the temple, where are they to accuse me? They're not here. He's saying there's no evidence for either of these things. But then in the middle, I love what he does is he says, if I am on trial for one thing, here is my confession I will gladly make. I am completely guilty of being a follower of the way. I, I stand before you a condemned man that I believe in Jesus and I am worshiping Jesus as the savior of my soul. And so, so this, this confession he's making is saying uh, is an important little uh, way to share the gospel with the, not only the Roman leaders who are there, but every one of the Jewish leaders who are in listening as well. And so what, what he does here is he says, takes four steps and says, this is what Christianity is. This, this is what authentic Christianity is. And what he's doing is, is saying it's not a sect 
It's not a cult. It's not a break off of Judaism, but rather it is Judaism in its fulfilled form. This is as God always intended for him to be worshipped. This is as it was meant to be the whole time. And so he says that he worships the God of our fathers. He's saying that the same God in the Old Testament that revealed himself to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to all the prophets, that's the same God who has shown his glory that Paul has responded to that glory in worship, which is a reminder that when we follow Jesus, it's always a response to who he is. God's glory is that the manifest, concentrated presence of his beauty and his power and his majesty and all those things. And when we encounter that, we respond by worshiping and declaring how worthy he is of our praise and our adoration and all those things. And then he says that he has a faith in what has been written, okay, the law and the prophets. He's saying that the, the Jesus that he serves is a fulfillment of what the Old Testament pointed to. There was a megachurch pastor a few years ago who made a lot of headlines by saying that we needed to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament, right? And what Paul is doing here is saying that that's impossible to do. The Old Testament prophesies about the Jesus that we worship and we see manifest in the New Testament. You can't separate the law and the prophets from what we see in Jesus. And then he says the third thing about Christianity is that he, he has the same hope that everyone who loves God does, the idea of the hope in the end resurrection, what he says of the just and the unjust. It's this idea that at the end of our life, that what happens when you close your eyes in death is not the final moment. Okay, that we are all eternal beings who will either be resurrected to spend eternity with Jesus or resurrected to be, experience the punishment of separation from God and his presence in hell. And so what that shows us is that if you are a follower of Christ, this, this is such a wonderful phrase, I'm sure you've heard it before. If you are a follower of Christ, this life is as worse as it will ever get. This is as bad as you will ever have because what waits for you in eternity in heaven is glorious. But if you are not a follower of Christ, what it means is that this life is as good as it's ever going to get. This is the best that you can hope for because eternity apart from Jesus is not what you were created for. And then he ends by saying, in light of all of those things, I have one goal, and that's I make pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. He's saying if all of those things are true, if God is worthy of worship, if he has revealed himself in his word and we can know his character and his son, and if we have this hope of the end time resurrection, then in light of that, I try to live with a clean conscience. I try to live my life in a way that worships God and shows people who he is. And so what, so what, what we see in this trial is an unfair situation, right? These, this unfair, this unjust judge is ruling over these unfair accusations. And Paul spends a little bit of time pointing to the truth and saying, yes, I'm not guilty of these things. But where he really zeroes in, where he really plants his flag is saying, this is an opportunity to share the gospel. In the midst of the unfairness, there is an opportunity to share the gospel. Now, here's the reason why this is important for us as American Christians is because in the last two years, the church has become more divided than we have ever seen it in, in my life and maybe in the history of the American church. I mean, maybe the Civil War would be the only time the church was more divided than it is now. And what's happened is that there's been this dividing line where there's two sides that have come up. One side that is out of a desire to be accepted by culture is willing to put aside some of the truths of Scripture. And on the other side of the dividing line is people who are so committed to the truth and to winning and to power that they are willing to put aside the character of Christ in order to win political victories. 
Okay, and on each of those sides, there's this division where no one trusts the other side. On the one side, we're lobbing these grenades saying, oh, they're so woke, they don't know Jesus. And on the other side, we're lobbing grenades saying, oh, they're a bunch of Christian nationalists, they don't know Jesus. But on both of those things, what's happening is that we are reacting against the unfairness of our society and trying to find a way to make things better for the church. Okay, and so, but what if in reacting to the unfairness of society, the way that, the way that when we talk about love and who Jesus is, we're told we're, we're bigots and hateful, the way when we talk about um, following Jesus, who's the suffering king and lays down his rights, we're told that we're, we're being too soft and we're not willing to fight hard to win. Like when, when in, we're in the middle of those attacks, what if instead of pushing for what's fair, what if instead we use them as an opportunity to describe who Jesus is to the world? I, I think what's happening is, is if you can pursue your political agenda without the doctrine of Christ or the character of Christ, you probably have the wrong agenda. I think that Jesus has positioned us in this moment in history where we can say the gospel is the most important thing. Politics is important, society is important, but it's a lesser degree. The most important reason why we are here is to tell people about the love of Jesus. And if in a society that feels unfair, if we respond like Paul instead of responding like we have the last few years, I think we would see more opportunity to share the love of Jesus with people in our midst. And and here's the reason why this is important. When we seize the opportunity to proclaim the gospel with people, that opens the door for more opportunities to proclaim the gospel with people. Let's, Let's see what happens next in this story as we wrap it up. Verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off. So he understands what Christianity really is. And he's saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. So Lysias was the guy who arrested Paul last week. And he's, he's, uh, Felix is just stalling. He, he doesn't want to make a ruling today, so he's just putting everyone off. It says, then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Okay, so so what Felix is doing is he's trying to not make any ruling. He knows that if he, there's no evidence to condemn Paul, so he knows that he can't put him in prison like the Jews want. He also knows that if he acquits Paul and lets him out of prison, that there's going to be a riot on his hands, and he's going to have to put down another insurrection. So he tries to just kick the can down the road by leaving Paul in prison, but he's trying to pacify Paul by saying, I'll let some of your friends visit you. You can can be a little bit more comfortable even though I'm leaving you locked up. Ignoring the fact that for two years, with no conviction and no charges that stuck. Paul has been stuck in prison. That's like the definition of an unfair situation. But what Paul does is he uses that unfair situation as another opportunity to share the gospel because Felix and his wife Drusilla, who's Jewish, who has a little bit of a curiosity in Jesus or at least familiar with the Old Testament, they come and Paul uses it as the opportunity to preach the gospel. So, so here's the interesting thing about Felix and Drusilla. We know from historians. Felix is the most unjust, unfair, brutal ruler in that area that they've ever seen. He's on his third wife now, Drusilla, and he was able to get Drusilla to leave her first husband because he hired a magician to try to entice her away from her husband in order to come marry him instead. 
Okay, so, so those are the people that Paul is preaching to. And listen to what he preaches about. He preaches about righteousness. He's basically saying the way that Felix is ruling is not at all how God has designed rulers to lead. He preaches to them about self-control. Like, I don't know, maybe staying faithful to your spouse and not, not trading them in when you want to find a new person. And he preaches to them about judgment. The fact that even though Paul is in prison, there's a higher authority that Felix and Drusilla will both have to answer to. And so I, I love the guts of Paul, the, the courage it takes to be able to preach the gospel exactly the message that these two people need to hear. And that's part of us. If we're going to be good missionaries, we need to be, be uh, reliant on the Spirit and quick on our feet. We need to be able to understand the people we are talking to and how does the gospel come to bear in unique ways upon their unique temptations that they experience in their lives. Okay, one of the things that we talk about is uh, contextualization is this, this, this big word that means we, we make the relevance of the gospel as clear as possible to the people we meet. Okay, we don't ever change the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is unchanging. But how we present that gospel, we need to speak to the needs of the people that we are talking to here. And it takes, again, it takes great courage to be able to specify how the gospel applies to someone who you're talking to. Okay, there's a story of a man named uh, Hugh Latimer who was one of the Protestant reformers during the reign of Henry VIII in England. And so Henry VIII was famous for, you know, divorcing all of his wives because he wanted a a male uh, offspring. And um, this Hugh Latimer gives a sermon about uh, holiness and righteousness and self-control, similar to what Paul does here. And it makes Henry VIII so upset that he issues an order and says, hey, you need to come back and preach to me again next week, only your whole sermon needs to be an apology to me for how you offended me last week. So Hugh Latimer comes into the, the, the same little pulpit that he preached to the king on, and he preaches word for word the exact same sermon he did the week before, right? Okay, that's the kind of courage of saying, uh, what you really need is Jesus and his gospel. And if I tailor my message around your individual sins or your pet projects, I'm actually not loving you well. I'm not glorifying the king of kings if I, if I tailor my message to where your own individual struggles are. And so with that, though, the thing we also see here is that the gospel always demands a response. So when the gospel is preached to Felix, it says that Felix was alarmed. Okay, his heart was quickened. His conscience was struck. He realizes there is something in what Paul is saying that is not in the normal words he's heard other people say before. He's alarmed. But what does he do with that alarm? He, he, he flees from it. He says, that, well, okay, this is enough for now. I don't want to deal with this right now. And instead, he comes back to Paul from time to time, but it's only because he wants a bribe. He just wants some more money. So when his conscience is convicted by the word of God, he runs to his comfort, his idol of greed and money, hoping that that will satisfy him instead. And, and, and here's this, this hard reality that's true whenever we hear the gospel. The gospel always has an effect on our souls. It either draws us closer to Jesus and makes us more aware of who he is and how beautiful he is, or it hardens our hearts and makes us more inoculated or immune to the next time we hear the gospel. There's that passage in Hebrews where the author says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Okay, the worst thing we can do if we're here and the Holy Spirit is convicting us is to run from that conviction and run towards our idols, hoping that they will satisfy us instead. And that's not how it works. So at the end of this then, I just, this passage ends by saying that Paul was kept there for two years. And, and I love how in the Bible sometimes you're like, you hear like two years and we move on. Like think of where you were two years ago. And imagine being locked in a prison cell for two years over an unjust judge making an unfair ruling against you. 
Like talk about a desire to respond in anger or a desire to fight for your rights or a desire to, to make sure that your life is fair. And, and what I want us to do is, is as we close this morning is, is not push back that hard question of how do we respond when life is unfair? Okay, each of us here this morning has something in our life that if you evaluate, you say, this feels heavy, this feels difficult, this doesn't feel just or right, it, it feels unfair. And yeah, life may be unfair, but I, I don't know what to do with this situation. Okay, so, so what we typically do is we try to just uh, tell ourselves, you know, suck it up, buttercup, like get, get over it, try to toughen up, uh, be, be tougher this time, work harder, push through it, do it on your own. You can find a way to not give in to despair in the midst of this unfairness. But if all you're relying on is your own internal willpower to get through unfair situations, you will never make it with the kind of character that Jesus wants for us, with the kind of integrity that he has for us. So instead, what I want us to do is to say, how did Paul get to this point and endure this unfairness? And I think when we read through all of the rest of his writings, we can say that the reason he was willing to endure an unfair situation in his life is that he recognizes that the gospel he was preaching is at its very core the most unfair message he has ever heard. Think about it. Like the most innocent man who ever lived, who who never sinned, committed any sins or fault in any way, took all the sins of humanity on himself and died on the cross in our place for our sins. Okay, is there anything more unjust than that? Anything more unfair than that? The idea of like in the gospel, we get grace and mercy. Grace is we get what we don't deserve. We get God's favor and his love and his kindness. And we get his mercy. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. The punishment that should have been due to us was put on Jesus instead. And so what we're seeing is that the best way to push through the unfairness of life is to rest in the unfairness of the gospel. The best way to push through the unfairness of life is to rest in the unfairness of the gospel. Here here are the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Think about that. He's saying, when your life is unfair, that is a chance for you to experience the grace of God in a deeper way. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And the only way to push through the unfairness of life is to lean into and rest in the unfairness of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word today, the fact that when we go to uh, your, your words, we find the life that we need. We have find the reminders that we need. Uh, God, I pray that as each of us uh, thinks about uh, that unfair thing in our life, the thing that feels heavy on our hearts right now, that we would remember that you have already endured infinite more unfairness than we could ever imagine. So may we rest in that truth, rest in the fact that you loved us enough to experience an unjust death in our place so that we can find an undeserved life at your side. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Amen. All right, well, what we're going to do now is uh, turn to our discussion table. So if this is your first time here, the reason we sit at these round tables is so we can process together what God is showing us uh, in, through his word in our lives uh, on the ground, uh, Monday through Sunday kind of thing. So the three questions that get us started are, how do you typically respond when something feels unfair? And how does the gospel compel you to respond differently? Secondly, what are some things Christians in America feel are unfair? And in light of this passage, how do you think Paul would respond and lastly, the gospel is unfair. How does your heart respond to that sentence? And how does 1 Peter 2 impact your response? So we're going to get started with these questions. And then we also have these questions available in our discipleship collectives throughout this week if we don't have time to get to them today. So let's do this for about 10 minutes and then we'll end with a time of worship. All right, at this time, we're going to transition into communion and worship. I want to uh, take a second, though, real quick, and just remind us all of a theological truth that we commonly sing with our kiddos, Um, but it's something that has to reign very true, and it's so simple, but Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's something that when a kiddo sings it, you just hear the, the softness of God coming out, that he softens our hearts in our distress. Um, I want to go to Psalm 118, uh, verse 5 and 6. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We know that Paul, in his distress, was way more concerned with what the gospel was doing in these other people's lives. He totally put his own security, safety, intentions, citizenship of Rome, all of that jazz behind himself so that he had an opportunity to love Felix and whoever else was around him well by presenting the gospel. If you've been, I mean you have been, sinned against and sinned this week. But we have a Savior who is so personal that would have went to the cross solely because he loved you individually. It is not this massive group effort where we can think that Jesus is saving all of us at once, yet he is, but he also is saving you individually. So lean into the distress that you're feeling or the sin that you've been sinned against or the sin that you have caused to someone else, resting in the assurance that Jesus Christ covers a multitude of sins, that he went to the cross for every single one of those, that he bears every single one of those in your stead. It is not you that is waning on the cross, waiting for that recompense to come through against you. Jesus has already paid that price. So we can go to the cross, we can go to communion with boldness, knowing that Jesus loves us, that he saves us, and that work is finished, and his love continues on forever. Here at Monsieur Day, we practice open communion. So if you are not a member here, but um, you do believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, saved you, and has risen, Um, please come to the table during the next couple songs. We'll be worshiping um, to take communion together. Um, If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ yet, um, then we ask you to abstain. And my wife and I um, will probably be over here near the coffee. Um, And we would love to have a conversation with you and pray with you over that, um, just so we can talk about what, what this means to be fully assured that if God is for us, what can man do against us? Um, So I'm going to pray real quick, and then we'll go into song. Heavenly Father, we know you love us, and we are so thankful that you chose to come to earth 
taking the form of man, waiting all of the sin, dying on the cross, dying and rising again, Father. We trust that you have the good intentions for us, that we can, we can be here on earth, Father, that you have prepared good works for us so that we can rest in the assurance that though we are sojourners, we are only here for a very short little time, Father, that we can rest in our eternity, and our eternity is in you, Father, that we can worship you and praise you um, as we do that now, Father. So let us go to the table and let us sing and remember what Jesus has done once for our sin, yet loves us for eternity.